Good morning, I'm Aubrey. And just for, Janelle, wait, just for those of you who don't know, this is my wife. She tries to hide, but she's standing up. So if you haven't met her yet, there she is. Okay. If I haven't met you, I do hope to meet you. Uh, I hope you stick around after the service for coffee and bagels. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. There's a book in the Bible called Jeremiah. If you have a Bible, we find that book. Uh, if you need to use your table of contents, go for, go for it. It's kind of just right of center in the Bible. It's one of the longest books in the Bible. It's basically a record of the prayers and the sermons of a guy by the name of Jeremiah who lived about 600 years before Jesus. Now, when we read the book of Jeremiah, we see that life was hard for him. And in particular... His job was hard. He suffered massively from his work. If you have your Bible, a Bible, look at Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 18. Listen to these heartbreaking words. Here's Jeremiah speaking. Why is my pain unceasing? My wound, incurable, refusing to be healed. An incurable wound? I have a hunch that over half of this room knows something of this kind of suffering. This is what it was like for him to go to work every day. The, the work that God had given him in life was unbearable. And if you take to read the whole book in one seating, and I hope you do that. You need to do that. That's the way Jeremiah works best. One day, get a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and set, set aside a couple of hours and just start at the beginning and read straight through it. What you see is that this deep wounding in his life, it manifested itself around four kind of issues. First of all, at his work, there were people who did not like him. He had enemies. That his work brought him up in, in, into their you know, presence Day after day after day, there were people who not only opposed him, they hated him. And they persecuted him. And second, not only did he suffer at the hands of, of people that were opposing him, but he suffered from loneliness. He never married. He had no wife, no children. And, and, and this is certainly not the only way to deal with loneliness. In fact, the primary way that loneliness is dealt with in God's kingdom is through spiritual friendship, not through family. And yet, for him, in his moment in time, in his life, there was an aching, inconsolable loneliness out of being alone. 
And over and over, we see this unrelenting, solitary suffering. Third, Isaiah suffered from failure. Constant failure. He was not successful at his work. It didn't produce. Some of you, you know this kind of suffering. At the end of the day, you're not the rock star of the company. You're not getting any rewards. And not only did he suffer from failure, but he, su- he also, his failure was repeatedly kind of seen by others. Fourth, He suffered from his own internal emotional disorientation. Inside, Jeremiah was on a roller coaster ride. Let me just show you one. And there's passages for all of this, but I'm just trying to set the stage for something. Let me show you a passage for this particular issue. Jeremiah chapter 20. In the course of one prayer... Starting in verses 7 through 10, we we can read about, we can hear Jeremiah crying out to God in anguish. And then in verses 11 to 13, he begins to hope, which happens to a lot of people, right? You cry out to God or you share your despair with a friend and you suddenly find yourself sliding into hope. But then notice what happens in verses 14 to 18. He goes even deeper than he started into despair. He crashes back down into hopelessness. And this is just one example of the hyper inconsistency of his own inner emotional state. Hatred, loneliness, failure, and an internal emotional hurricane. And this went on for 41 years. 41 years of this. An entire career of this. And yet somehow, against these impossible odds, the impossible odds of an incurable wound, Jeremiah grew. He grew through all of this. He, he grew more and more wise. He grew more and more holy and righteous and virtuous. He became a more patient man. A more kind man. A more loving man. And somehow, he sustained this growth journey through a terribly painful 41-year vocation of it. How? How does one make it when the suffering is so deep, so frequent, and so endless? How do you you survive such a fiery furnace? Well, what we see in the book of Jeremiah is that his secret, the secret, is learning how to pray. Real prayer, authentic prayer, deep, 
intimate prayer. This is the secret at the center of Jeremiah's life. When you read the book of Jeremiah over and over again, you come across his prayers. Like the one we've already read from, that passage about the incurable wound that I read you, that was his prayer. That was him talking to God. When when Jeremiah prays, when you read his book and you come across these prayers, you come across a man who is pouring his whole self out to God. His despondency and doubts and disillusionment, his curses and unanswered questions, over and over his hurt cries out for healing and vindication. It's through his cultivation of a deep prayer life that he endures. And his soul is able to open up to God for refreshment and restoration and strength for one more day and one more day and one more boring, overwhelming day. It's through his prayer life that Jeremiah is able To get into such a place with the creator that his wounds become the means of his formation. They become the very points of growth. Like a scar jabbed into hard ground that creates the place where the plant can grow. You see, prayer done right places us before the face of God, which is precisely where spiritual formation occurs. Today is the third and final sermon in this little series that we're doing through Advent focused on spiritual formation. And if our spiritual formation is to be anything more than just a pious wish, we must Dive into the ocean depths of this kind of praying. Prayer, this ongoing conversation with your creator who is the source of life. It does not come naturally. It doesn't happen at the margins of our life. It doesn't happen right before we fall asleep. It's not some sprinkling like salt over our food. This is not the kind of praying I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jeremiah's kind of praying. And it's the kind of praying that some in the church have frequently called contemplative prayer. It's a lot of different kinds of praying. We're doing prayer this morning called liturgical prayer. Um, where we give these, these, have these prayers given to us and we walk through scriptures and it's very ordered. That's a very important kind of praying that Jesus did a lot of. He did this regularly, weekly, and you should too. But this morning I want to focus on this other kind, this hidden kind of praying. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And... Notice verse 42. When it was day, 
he departed, talking about Jesus, and went to a desolate place. A place all by himself. No distractions. No newspapers, no TVs. Nobody else to interrupt. And then look at chapter 5, verse 16, just the very next chapter. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is a thing he did a lot of. Now, just for the record, if right now you're saying, but I'm so busy, let me ask you a question. Do you, do you think you have a larger, more intimidating job than redeeming the cosmos? Do, do you think you're busier? You have more demands. Do you think you have more important work? Do you think your excuse of, but I've got really important things to do, do you think it can measure up against the three-year task at his hand? And yet, he ruthlessly carved spaces in his schedule. A friend of mine, a mentor, my doctoral supervisor, his name is Craig Bartholomew. He's a brilliant scholar, he's a theologian, he's a philosopher, he's at Cambridge University. In a recent book, here's what he wrote about this kind of praying. Fires ordinarily blaze in the open, but not so with prayer. Prayer is like a hidden fire whose effects are seen in our humanity and in God's response. We are made for God, and thus there is nothing more human than prayer. It op it's the open stamps in relation to the living God who has come to us in Jesus. However, because it is hidden, we easily neglect it, and we settle for less when God wants to give us so much more of himself. It's hidden. The kind of praying I'm talking about this morning, no one knows for sure whether you are doing it or not. This type of prayer, it is so critical to our flourishing, our own growth into our true selves, our own spiritual formation. It is so critical to us living for God's glory. It is so critical, but it is only going to happen in secret, in private. We have to learn from Jesus how to seek it, how to withdraw to private places. Solitude is the furnace in which transformative prayer occurs. If we are, if we are going to survive suffering, if we are to flourish as humans, if we are going to live for God in this world, we have to find oases, places of solitude, deserts into which we can withdraw again and again and again so that we can find ourselves once again before the face of Christ. And it's as we do this, it's as we follow Christ's model it's as we follow Christ into the secret place that he will fashion us, form us. That he will be born in us like he was in Mary. That we will be free to give birth to him in this world. Spiritual formation requires a deliberate withdrawal from the noise 
and the clamor of the day. All of us, men and women, teenagers, college students, all of us have to regularly, daily dedicate every day some amount of time to enter deeply into a real conversation with the Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is so madly in love with you that only the foolishness of the cross makes sense. And this is so difficult to do in the context of a busy life, a demanding business. What about the treadmill of teaching at a university, of teaching at, at, at an elementary school? This is so difficult to do in the bustle and the demands of raising children. We are constantly bombarded by the excesses of technology and communication and by our schedules and by important work that we, we do and overwhelming demands. It is so difficult to resist being swallowed up by frenetic activity. One of the most important things you can do is to find a way ruthlessly find a way to, in, to add some oasis, some desert to your life, to slow down, to simplify. The world does not need more of you. It needs more of God. Your friends don't need more of you. They need more of God. You don't even need more of you. You need more of God. Resist. Flurry and worry. Find a way. Find a way. Now for the remainder of the sermon, I want to talk about a thing you can do when you actually pull this off. I want to talk to you about how to do contemplative prayer. There's an insert in your worship guide. On one side of it, it says reading the Bible. I, I talked to you about this last week. Spiritual formation requires scripture and prayer. Last week, I talked about the role of scripture. And one of the things I talked to you about was reading the Bible in whole books. I encourage you to, to purchase a reader's edition of the Bible. Look, if you don't have the money to purchase it, just tell me. Uh, the, the church will buy it. We'll find a way to get, get you a copy of it. Here's a 40-week reading plan. where, um, And it tells you how long it takes to read as the average reader each book. So look, 40 weeks. It's kind of a thing in the Bible. 40, all right? And this basically means you need to read through the Bible once a year. All right? And you're not going to hit about 100 and get it every week. So just get 40. 40 of them in there. Maybe take some time off because you're doing a Bible study during a couple of weeks with some friends and that takes over your, your time or maybe take some time off when you go for vacation. But here's in 40 whacks a way to read through the Bible with the amount of time it takes so you can plan it out in advance and carve out these amounts of time to read each book in one setting. But look on the back of this. Today I want to talk to you about how do you pray the Bible? Contemplative prayer. Now, there are many ways to do it. I'm just sharing with you one particular way of doing it that, that it, many, many millions of people around the world use. It's called Lexio Divina. It's been around for ages. Um, and I'm going to walk through this. But before we 
go into this. Two upfront issues. Turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I want to show you something quite remarkable. John chapter 10 is a brutal, brutal moment in the life of Jesus. He's getting pummeled. Um, in chapter 10, he gives this wonderful teaching so many of us are familiar with, that he's the good shepherd. And you know what the response to him for it is? A black eye. He gets decked. Everybody gets mad at him. Verses 19, 20, 21, they're arguing with him. They're accusing him of being demon-possessed. Have you ever been utterly misunderstood and accused? When you were bringing good and you just got nailed for it? And then in verse 22, there he goes again in one of his amazing teachings. And look at the response in verse 31. They pick up stones to kill him with them. This is not a good season of Jesus' life. So they, they try to kill him, and Jesus again tries to bring good to them. In verse 39, they try to arrest him. Every, every time he comes out with this goodness, he gets persecuted. He gets assaulted. He, he suffers for it. Now, here's, the, here's what I want you to see. Jesus kept trying to tell them who he was and what he was trying to do. And they kept saying he was wrong and he shouldn't be doing that. Have you ever had somebody strike at the core of your identity? Mothers, you're a bad mother. Have you ever got the, the message, either directly or indirectly, that um, the very thing you do, you can't do good? Have you ever had somebody really strike at your identity? It is profoundly disorienting. There's the wound of the assault, but then there's the internal wound of confusion. When Jesus gets assaulted like this, look what it says in chapter 10, verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where he had been baptized. Those of you who've read the Bible before, do you remember what God the Father said to Jesus the Son at his baptism? He said, you are my son, my beloved son. I am pleased with you. And when the Father says that to Jesus, that's the place Jesus goes when it gets confusing. He goes to the place where that happened. All right? What I'm trying to tell you is that place matters. If it mattered for Jesus, you're not better off able to navigate confusion than he is. If physical place was, was, a, was a, a part of his own spiritual life, let it be a part of yours too. So the first thing I'm saying to you is find a place. Find a holy place. It could be a chair it could be a corner in your house. It could be a closet. I had a friend growing up whose mother, in her closet, she had a rug and she knelt there. And that was the place where she met with God over and over again. Place matters. You need to find a place. And the, and the second thing that's important for contemplative prayer, not only is place, but the second time is time. Find a place and a time. 
and with, with as much as it's within your ability, give the best moment of your day to this. The most alert moment of your day. The moment, prime time for you. Whenever it is that you are most alert, least distracted, least overwhelmed by the pressures, most able to get quiet and still, unencumbered by, as much as it's within your power, pick the best place and the best time and make that your temple, your tabernacle, your cell of prayer. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, we're told about Jesus rising very early in the morning. While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. For Jesus, it appears that the best time for him was early in the morning. And for most people, this is the case, outside of adolescence, right? Now, you know, my, my children, uh, Spencer has to get up at 6 o'clock to make it to school on time. Like, this is hard, right? So it might be for her that prior to six is not the best moment for her. Find the best moment that you can find and pray. All right. And then what do we do when we get there? Seven phases for a a contemplative prayer. Look, you you can do this in 15 minutes. Or you can drift off into La La Land for an hour, right? It's... You're not, you're not trying to kill it in any one moment. You're trying to set up a, a practice that as weeks and ye- months and years and decades go by, you get really good at this. Okay? So e- look, look, even if it's just 15 minutes, carve it aside. Um, for me, it's a chair. There's a chair at the house. There's a chair at my office. My wife tends to do it at the, kitchen, at the dining room table. Um, Shay does it at a desk. Sloan likes to sit on this couch that's in our room. You find your place. You find your moment. Okay, seven phases. Once you get to that place at that time, you need to relax. You need to slow down. You need to get still, and you need to calm down. You need to calm your body and your heart and your mind. We have to prepare for a direct encounter with the Almighty. Living the Christian life is not only a matter of learning to do right and developing the habits of righteousness and holiness. It's definitely that. But that is not the center of it. The vital thing is you as an individual having a daily encounter with the living God personally. Notice our song. In our our worship guide, notice... Notice, um, go back, I think it's on page like two or something, three. Notice our psalm. Verse five. You, this is Psalm 40, verse five. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare them to you, right? So here's the psalmist saying, God, you have, a, you have energy toward me. You think about me, right? And, and it's amazing. It's, it's incredible. So he goes from this kind of really intimate Statement: God has massive, innumerable, amazing, loving, kind, gracious thoughts about Deacon, right? This is amazing, right? Uh, about Susanna, this is incredible. But notice the very next line. In sacrifice and offering, you've not delighted. I don't get access to them through religious activities. No, ears you have dug for me. The, the really critical thing is that I hear them. 
burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Look, so at the beginning of verse 5, in sacrifice and offering you've not delighted, the end, burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. So it's religious behavior at the beginning and end of verse 5, but right in the middle of it, he says, that's not what gives me access to it. What gives me access to it right in the middle of it is getting my ears unclogged, is getting into that place where I can hear him. Verse 7, then I can say, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It's written to me. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within me. How does God's word get into our heart? By getting super still and listening. That's how it gets into our heart. You need to get still. You need to offer God the hospitality of silence in our hyper-busy, overly technological world. When you get to that place in that time, you've got to have a way to calm down. Here's what I do. I light a candle. I remember that Christ is the light of the world. And then I do a breathing technique that we learn from cognitive behavioral therapists. I breathe in for five seconds, I hold it several seconds, I let it out slowly for seven seconds, and I do this seven to ten times. I try to pay attention to my feet, uncross my legs, and as I do this, look, there's a, there is a connection between your body and your inner state. So this is how I get quiet. This is how I offer God the hospitality of silence. And then, after I've done that, and I've gotten very still, and this is not just me. I mean, this is stuff that spiritual masters have been teaching for years. Then, I look onto my couch. I imagine the Lord Jesus sitting there, and I say hello. I greet him. Right, this is Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, open the door. So I turn my body and I open the door. I say, typically it's in the morning. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Think about this. The only way we can live up to the idea which God the Father had of us at creation is through an intimate, personal relationship with him who had an idea of us at creation. He made us. And without this kind of deep, intimate relationship with him, you cannot be complete. In the Garden of Eden, one of the most remarkable things of all the delights, it was a garden of delight. The most, one of the most remarkable things was that Adam and Eve walked with God every day. They had a walk with him. And what is that showing us? It's showing us that we were made for an intimate relationship with God. This is what God made you for. You cannot be complete without it. Then, after you've done this, third phase, freedom. Freedom. Turn to our gospel reading. Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 10 and chapter 11.
The disciples asked Jesus. Oh, by the way, um, all th- we, we read three stories, right? The story of Martha and Mary at the end of chapter 10, then Jesus teaching the Our Father, and then this teaching about giving a gift. This is all one section. Your Bible has like a, a chapter break in the middle of it, which unfortunately causes you to fragment. This is all about prayer. When the disciples ask Jesus to teach them how to pray, he doesn't give them a long prayer. It's pretty short. It starts with our Father. That's the heart of prayer. It's coming into a relationship of intimacy. Jesus wants you to come into his relationship with the Father. He gives you the gift of that. He says, come with me and call on God the way I do, the Father the way I do. But notice, notice that while the heart of prayer is this remarkably intimate relationship with God as Father, notice that the goal of prayer is God's glory. Hallowed be your name. True spirituality is first and foremost about God's glory and not first and foremost about your well-being. Come into this relationship where you can be oriented toward the glory of God. We need freedom for that. Because how many of us walk through a day without getting barnacled up with our own agendas, our own hurts, our own sufferings, our own distractions, our own worries, our own needs? This is why we come to this moment in prayer called freedom where we, where we admit that haste and hurry are deadly and so we cry out to God to be calm and not agitated, to be completely confident. We ask God for the freedom to have this moment of prayer. We, we need freedom so that it's not actually just the echoing of our own thoughts inside our busy, shallow souls. We need freedom from that. And then, consciousness. Now look, some, if you're thinking, wait a minute, why can't we just get on with it? Because we can't just get on with it. That's the problem with a lot of us. We rush into Jesus' presence the way we, our, our friends sometimes rush into our life, right? Have you ever been in a friendship with somebody who would always say, here, come with me, come with me. I got to do this. I got to do that. Like, have you ever had a boss that you needed to talk to them and you could never get them to turn their attention to you? So what, what, what the Christian life has been teaching for millennia is that we've got to, like it said, Brianna read to us, when you go to the house of the Lord, shut your mouth. Be quiet, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We, so all of these moments, they're, they're movements, they're moments to get us quiet inside. Consciousness, as we seek to give God attention, we, we, we need to recognize that the most dangerous temptation a human faces, the most deadly test, the most perilous trial is, is to doubt God's identity as your merciful father and to doubt your identity as his beloved child. 
That's the most deadly temptation. That's what Jesus taught after the Lord's Prayer. He gave this little story about you need something. You go to your neighbor. You knock, you knock, you knock. And look what it says down at the end. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will your Father give you the Holy Spirit? Look, the deepest temptation is to doubt that God is a merciful, gracious Father and to doubt that you are his beloved child. That's why after teaching the Lord's Prayer, Jesus had this really evocative parable to say to you, look, the very best among you, your, your very best intention for your child is only a pale pointing to God's deep love and attention and intention for you. And in our prayer time, like Jeremiah showed us, we need to be honest about how we've shown up to this moment. We need to own up. We need to just say, we need to say, here's how I'm feeling right now. I'm really distracted right now. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for meeting me here. But to be honest, I don't want to be here. This is boring to me. The last 38 times I've done this, I've gotten nothing out of it. I'm not even sure you're really there. Or maybe what you need to say is, I love you and I believe in you so much, but I am so overwhelmed with anxiety right now. Or maybe what you say is, I'm so glad to be here. I love you so much. You've been so good to me. You need to come to him in this moment and just lay out there exactly who you are. Isn't that, isn't that an amazing gift when your friends, when your lover does that with you? When they bring themselves, their whole being to you. And now we turn to scripture. And now we're ready. There's many ways to pick a passage. There's many different reading plans of the Bible out there. But you need to find a passage, a short passage. Maybe just pick one of the books of the Bible and start going through it paragraph by paragraph each day. Each day, take a new paragraph. Or maybe take the encounters that Jesus has in his gospels with people and go by, just go from one to the other. And as you read it, pay attention. What word or scene Catches your attention. Look, for me, the best metaphor for this is fishing. Paul Yoder has this pond in front of his house, Paul and Carol. And they've invited our family a couple of times to go over and fish in it. And Silas um, trounces everybody else. He catches all these fish. I don't know how in the world he does it. Right next to somebody. Um, So, reading scripture contemplatively is you've got your little bobber, your little cork, and you just, as you're reading, you pay attention for that little tug. What catches your attention? What, what kind of tugs? And, you, and when you find it, you just reel it in. You think about it. You, you hold it in your conscious, in your, in your mind, and you meditate on it, and you turn it over like, like when you have a piece of, a really great piece of candy in your mouth, and you're just savoring it. And enjoying it. That, that's what we need to do in these moments. See, this is very different than Bible study. This is very different than reading right through a whole book. In fact, when you're doing whole book readings, don't do this. Don't stop. Don't turn back. Don't pray. Just get to the end of it. But this, this contemplative prayer, you stop. You savor. Mary and Martha, right? Our scripture reading, Luke chapter 10. Martha invited Jesus into her home. 
because she knew who he was. She loved him. But the cares of this world choked out a moment she had. There's Mary, though, right? Sitting silently at his feet. Bringing her whole body and being to attention. And when Martha says, there's so much to do, Jesus says, yes, but one thing. One thing is the most important thing. Mary's chosen that. Chose it. Chose it. Made this ruthless choice for it. If this was any other book, all you're looking at is an example. But because this book was written, inspired, it is filled with the Spirit of God. And because we are reading of Jesus himself sitting sitting in that room in Mary and Martha's house. Listen, what Jesus says to Mary and Martha was not for them alone. It was for every man and every woman. It was for every child. And when you turn to it and you open your heart up, he speaks through it to you, a fresh and new living word because he is the word. Every day, God has something to say to you. Every day, he wants to quiet you with his love and meet with you. You have to become a hearer. And then when that happens, you talk to him. You just respond. Praise, confession, thankfulness, questions. Imagine. So what I do in these moments is I just turn toward my couch And I try to talk to Jesus as one friend to another. Sometimes then you go back to scripture. Then you go back. And look, the most important thing, teenagers, you are learning so many important things at school. So many things you need to learn. Make sure you learn the most important. Make sure you get on the prayer journey. Don't wake up in your 30s. And you don't know how to do this. College students, you are learning massively important things. Learn the most important thing. Learn how to get still with God and open up the deepest parts of your life to Him so that He can work in the deepest parts of your life. And then when you finish your time, and again, this doesn't have to be an hour long, it's not a Bible study. Parents, learn how to do this so you can teach your kids how to do this. Be be attuned to the different ways different personalities do this. It's not a one-size-fits-all. And then finish. In some way, sign off. The glory be. The Our Father. Develop some ritualized way of bringing this to a close. The very best resource I know for all of this is this. It's a book called Sacred Space. They make one every year. This is Sacred Space 2008. Um, The prayer book 2018, I mean. Um, It follows the church calendar, so it started with Advent. Uh, If if you don't like books, if if you don't have money for it, Please do it. Come talk to me. We'll get you one. Don't, don't let that stop you. Or you, you can go to www.sacredspace.ie. And it's a beautiful website where you kind of click through these seven 
phases. Actually, it's six. It doesn't do the first one where you just get yourself still. You're supposed to do that on your own. Set a goal, 15 minutes a day. Jesus, Jeremiah, Mary, David. Let's learn from them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.